a lot of you, uh, between military service and contractors and government service, you do a lot of foreign travel, and so you know what it's like to drive in other countries. I don't do much of that at all, so a week ago today, so with my daughter Bethany, we were down in Peru, and she was competing in the Pan Am Games. I was the chauffeur dad trying to survive the roads, and uh, I, could, I could give a bunch of stories from the driving down there, um, but the one that, that stood out to me was, you're going down a road, two lanes going in either direction, and there's a ramp to get to a highway that you have to get to, and we're used to the ramp goes off to the right, and then you go around and go up on the highway, or go over and go up on the highway. This one, the ramp goes off to the left, and there's no stop signs, no yield signs, no turn lanes, no signals, nothing. It's just you got to get from here to there with traffic coming that way, and they've got nothing telling them to slow down, and you just got to figure it out. And it, it, you'll get three or four cars, you know, just all lined up, just sort of dancing their way dangerously through traffic. And it was one of the first times I think I rented a car that I actually pondered partway through, was I a fool to not take the insurance on this and to think that I somehow had it covered? We made it, but it was a wild experience. And, and of course, the first time around you do it, you just, you hesitate because you think you're supposed to hesitate, and then you're about run over, and people are blowing their horns at you like, what are you waiting for? Just dive in there and weave through it. I say all that because when we, when we come to Galatians 5 this morning, Paul is really taking his Galatian readers to a crossroads. He is bringing them to a place in Galatians 5 where they have been walking along a path that is right and good and safe, and they are being tempted and diverted to move to this other path by false teachers. They are, are facing this fork in the road, if you will. Paul writes to the Galatians. They are largely Gentiles who have come to faith in Christ, and his tone in writing to them, though it is strong at times, also has this underlying assumption that you have trusted in Christ. I preached the true gospel to you. The Spirit has come and has been working in your midst. I have seen evidence of God's work in you, and I, I believe that you are following after the gospel. And I, I also know, though, that there are these false teachers who have come in, and as soon as Paul leaves the region, they come in, and, and they begin to, to lead people astray, to do everything they can to turn them off the safe path for believers in Jesus Christ and move them to this sort of novel approach they have to God. And so Paul sees his readers at this crossroads. And so as we walk through Galatians 5, we're going to go 2 through 12 this morning, I want you to envision that fork in the road and one path that is the, the true gospel of Jesus Christ and then this, this other path that is going to divert them dangerously away from that gospel. I'm going to read the whole section just to get us started. If I could go back to verse 1 where Stuart left off last week. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. 
A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Some of you are thinking, boy, it's good that plugging in resumes this week as we deal with some of the things in this passage and the kids are upstairs. So we're going to walk through three markers of the, that, that sort of differentiate, sort of separate this path of the true gospel and the false gospel that they are being diverted toward by the false teachers. And the first marker that separates us two is a marker of consequences. We could go back to verse 1, as Pastor Stewart led you through last week, the, the consequence, if you will, the, the result of, of trusting in Christ, Paul wants to emphasize over and over again, is freedom. You have freedom in Christ. Apart from Christ, you are in bondage to condemnation of the law. You are guilty under the law. You are in bondage to the shame of sin, and there is nothing that can be done for that. But in Christ, there is freedom. Jesus Christ, in his death on the cross, bore our punishment in his own flesh. He bore the punishment for our sins, and in his resurrection, he provides life and freedom. But then in verse 2, Paul says, Now, Here's where this other path is going. This is where the false teachers are trying to lead you, and he quickly gives the opposite consequence to make the point that there is no middle ground here. There's no sort of take a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of this religion over here and, and sort of syncretize them together in some way. The true gospel brings freedom. But if you reject it and you walk this way, you are walking down a distinctly different path that is your own religion. You are now taking it on yourself. And so he says there in verse 2, to every man who accepts circumcision, he is obligated now to keep the whole law. Christ will be of no advantage to you. Every man who accepts circumcision, he is obligated to keep the whole law. Christ will be of no advantage to you. The false teachers put a lot of emphasis on the right of circumcision. We should take just a moment to, to, to talk about that. It is the, 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 the circumcision is the removal of the male foreskin. It was started in Genesis 17. God directs Abraham and his line as a sign of his covenant with Abraham's line. And so it carries on then. We know from what we've already seen, we've gone back to Genesis, we've seen Paul deal with it in Galatians, that Abraham was justified by what? justified by faith. faith. Right. There we go. Abraham was justified by faith. He believed in God's promises. And that's what justified him. The rite of circumcision was something that comes after, and it is a, a covenant sign. The false teachers, though, are taking it, and they are saying, no, this is, this is an initiatory rite, if you will. This is something you have to do. This is required for your salvation. This is something that, that, that God now expects in order to achieve his approval. If you remember, the, the, the fundamental argument of the false teachers here is to these Gentile believers, you are embracing the Messiah who was sent to the Jews. And, and you can follow our Messiah, you can follow the Jewish Messiah, but you've got to do it the Jewish way. So you've ultimately got to be, males have to be circumcised, you've got to follow the law and the dietary restrictions and the celebrations and the feasts and all of the requirements of the law so that you convert over to being a good Jew, law-practicing Jew, and that then gets you in good stead 
with the God of the Jewish people, and maybe then you'll have his approval. They're essentially taking all of these works and tying them up, and Paul's using the circumcision here because that's the thing that they are focused in on. Paul had taught them that the gospel that was given to him by God, that is the, the, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that you are justified by faith. Again, going all the way back to Abraham, he believed God. Abraham is looking forward to the promise of one who is coming, who is coming to take away sin. We are looking back and we are resting in the fulfillment of that promise in Jesus Christ. And, and so circumcision, just like any other law-keeping act, any other act of obedience, uh, any sort of ritual, does not save. God's law has a function. It, it, it not only demonstrates to us the holiness of God and sort of guardrails that God puts in front of the life of one who walks after him, but really the function is to say that you are condemned by it. The, the law reveals our guilt. What the law does is it shows us that we fall short, that we sin, that we are not holy, that we can't keep it, and it keeps pointing us forward to our need for a Savior. The ultimate purpose of the law is that it would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is the one who would keep it perfectly and would provide a path for those who have been condemned by it, who are guilty because of the law. And so while, while circumcision is the ritual that we keep seeing here throughout the book of Galatians, particularly here in the early part of chapter 5, that's because that was the particular ritual that these false teachers continued to emphasize as this specific right. That got the most attention. But in reality, we could replace that word circumcision in verse 2 with with any of a hundred or more sort of good deeds, ritualistic sort of activities, religious sort of things that we could plug in there. And I, and I would encourage you that Galatians 5, 2 is one when you're talking to an unbeliever and, and you, you talk to them about what it is that they're putting their hope in, and they start putting anything in there other than Christ, maybe going to church, maybe being a decent person, maybe prayer, maybe giving offerings, maybe being sacrificial in some way, anything can fit right in there in verse 2. And what he says is, if you accept this, if you're going to if you're going to take this deed on, believing that that will get you right with God, then Christ is of no advantage to you. It is either or. You are either resting entirely in the gospel of Jesus Christ, or you are now relying on some particular religious activity for the purpose of trying to earn God's approval. And so he says, again, if you accept circumcision... Christ will be of no advantage. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision. He's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. If, if, you, if you're doing some good deed, some ritual, ritualistic prayer, whatever it is, giving some particular gift, if you are doing it with the mindset that somehow this should score me points with God, that, yeah, I, I see what Jesus has done, but I've got to do this as well, then what you are essentially doing is you are taking the finished work of the perfect Son of God, his suffering and death on the cross in the place of sinners and his resurrection, and you are saying that is not enough. That's Paul's argument here, when you say that Christ is of no advantage, he's saying once you, once you think you have to add something to the cross and the resurrection, once you add something, you are saying it's not enough. The death of Christ 
did not fully pay for my sins. And, and so if your attitude is the cross is a good moral example and a good sacrificial deed and a demonstration of love, and sure, Jesus suffered and died, but I still must have to suffer somehow. I still have to do something to, to earn approval from God. Then the cross now becomes of no advantage to you. There, you have just nullified the gospel of Jesus Christ and declared it to be insufficient. After all that Paul has already written to the Galatians about the glory of the freedom that is found in Christ, the joy of being set free, no longer in bondage to sin and to the law, verse 2, he just turns around and he says, but if you're going to give in to this teaching, if you're going to buy into this line that says, oh, Jesus is good and he's a good Messiah and a good example, and yes, he died and rose again, but, but you've got to earn it. If you're going to do that, then now it is all on you. If you're going to take the attitude that you've got to contribute something to your salvation, you are saying that Christ provides nothing for you. And his explanation for that is verse 3, and it is the function of the law, because essentially what he says is, if you say I've got to add something to Christ and it now becomes my merit, my performance, my activity, you are now taking the law and putting it on your shoulders. You are now bearing the responsibility of perfect obedience and keeping the law as the only way to satisfy God, and you can't do that. There's only been one who has perfectly kept the law and fulfilled the law, and that is Jesus Christ. If you do it, he says, verse 3, you are obligated to keep the whole law. James says that in James 2.10. Whoever keeps the whole law but falls or fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. There's not degrees of guilt. There are simply lawbreakers, us. We have broken God's law. We are sinners and we are guilty and we are unable to perfectly keep God's law. And what he's saying is if you're going to add human performance and, and good deeds to the mix and think that somehow you can supplement the cross with that in order to achieve justification, in order to be made right with God, then now it's, it's of no advantage to you whatsoever. It's all on you. The, the burden, the responsibility now to keep the law is entirely on you, and you can't do it. And that's why Paul then uses the brutally strong language in verse 4, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. If you are going to make your justification based in any part on human effort, you have made Christ ineffective. That word for severed is the idea of rendering something ineffective. You're, you're putting it to death, if you will. You're making it so it has no value anymore. And so if you are going to be justified by the law, you have now rendered Christ and the gospel to be ineffective. You can't take a little bit of it and a little bit of this and sort of mash it all together. You either rest in Christ or it's all on you. John Stott writes, to add circumcision, again, I would say to add works of the law even, to add circumcision is to lose Christ. To seek to be justified by the law is to fall from grace. You cannot have it both ways. It is impossible to receive Christ, thereby acknowledging that you cannot save yourself, and then receive circumcision, thereby claiming that you can. You have got to choose between a religion of law and a religion of grace, between Christ and circumcision. It is it is that simple. It is a crossroads. This is what Paul is taking the, the Galatians to under the assumption that you're, you're walking wisely on the gospel. And I know that there's this path that these false teachers are trying to divert you on. Don't go that way because there is no middle ground. Once you do that, you have abandoned the gospel and you have rendered it 
ineffective, and you are now on your own in this endless, fruitless striving for some kind of relief from the condemnation of sin and the burden of the law and the guilt and the shame that comes with it. You are, you are on this path of trying to find something that you'll never achieve apart from resting in Christ. If the Galatians continue down this, they will have fallen away from grace. He's not suggesting here a loss of salvation as much as he is talking about potential. Just like he says in verse 2 when he says, if you accept this, if you do this, his assumption all along will be, I believe that you are going to think clearly about this and see the truth and walk in the truth, but if you do this, this is what it will be. The, the grace that you have received through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the work of the Spirit to help you to see that, all of that will be lost, and you will be left on your own. It's consequences. There's either freedom in Christ, or there is this bondage that they are going to walk toward. Verse 5, so he says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Second marker that distinguishes the paths of these is this marker of identity. Of one's identity as being either in Christ or being engaged in self-works-oriented sort of salvation. The shift he makes here, you'll notice in pronouns, verses 2 through 4, if you, every man, it's, it's you are severed, you, would be just, you who would be justified, you have fallen away. And then in verse 5, he says, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for this righteousness, for the hope of righteousness. Second person warning. Paul is speaking to them, and when he is warning them, he is in sharp tone saying, if you do this, this is what awaits you, but I think better of you. And he adopts first person and says, but we. I believe that ultimately we will put our hope in Christ. In other words, I believe that you will join me in resting in faith in Christ, and we will have our hope in him and embracing the truth. And the truth is that in following Christ, there is both a present and a future identity that he describes here in this passage. One is evident in this life, he refers to it in verse 6, the other will be evident at the judgment seat of Christ. The other will be evident in what is to come, and he talks about that in verse 5. When he says in verse 5, for through the Spirit by faith we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. You might stop and go, what's he mean there? Because if I'm, if I'm trusting in Jesus Christ today, I believe that I am made righteous in Christ, that I am given a right standing. So what does he mean by this eager waiting of righteousness? What, what, what Paul's talking about is the fact that we all, everyone in this room, everyone in the world, will stand before God. They will stand before the judgment seat of the Creator, and they will stand accountable before His judgment. Those who are trusting in Christ, he says, we eagerly await the hope of righteousness. And what he means by that is those who are trusting in Christ, we know that that judgment is coming. When we stand before God, by virtue of our faith in Christ, we will be declared righteous by God. He is looking forward with great anticipation, and you and I need to pause and take this in. Let me just give you just real practical application of verse 5. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you understand the, the split, 
the dichotomy sometimes in what we know to be true and what we feel like is true. For the most part, a lot of us know what it's like to go through a day and not feel very righteous because we know our thoughts, we know the way we act, we know the things that we say, we know the truth, we know the work of Christ that saves and that we are declared to be righteous, and yet so often we look at our lives and, and we, we just don't feel very righteous because we're still struggling in the flesh and we're still dealing with sin. So we can, we can rejoice. Read a passage like Isaiah 61.10, "'My soul shall exult in my God.'" For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. I can read that and I can rejoice at that truth. That God sees me in Christ. That God sees me in a righteousness that he has put on me. And I, I can believe that and know that. And yet, so often I can feel like Paul in the midst of Romans 7 when he says, and yet, I do these things I don't want to do, and the things that I want to do I don't, and I, I hate this when I do the very thing that I, I hate to do. You and I have felt that, that tug, that, that apparent inconsistency between my actual position in Christ and my thoughts and actions, and the beauty of Galatians 5.5 5 is the promise of our ultimate identity of being declared righteous before God. It, it, it is walking into the courtroom, knowing that we are guilty, knowing that we do not have a plea of our own to somehow alleviate our guilt. We are guilty, and yet walking into the courtroom with the confidence that our mediator, Christ Jesus, will say, I have shed my blood and suffered and died for this one, and by their faith in me, they are righteous. They have been rescued from the penalty of the law. And that's the hope that he's looking forward to in verse 5, that, that Christ's suffering on the cross has been reckoned to our account and covers our sin, and Christ's resurrection from the dead has guaranteed our hope. And it's all been applied by the work of his Spirit to our lives so that we can join with Paul, and Paul is hoping that these professing believers in Galatia can join with him in saying, I eagerly await the judgment of God because I will be declared righteous, not by virtue of anything I have done, but by virtue of what Christ has done for me, the finished work of the gospel of Jesus Christ and believing in that. That is the coming identity for those who cling to the true gospel. But he also speaks here in verse 6 of, of an ongoing identity. He, he deals first with the issue of circumcision, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. That's referring back to the judgment, the future judgment he's just talked about, and he's just tied it right back to that and said, listen, that, that is not the issue of the judgment, that whether or not one has been circumcised, whether or not one has kept the law, whether or not one has done rituals. That is not it. But what happens is those who have faith, there is now a change, but only faith working through love. We live differently. Our faith is, is a living and active faith that demonstrates itself in love of God and love of others. This is where verse 6 comes in, and this is going to become really a dominant theme throughout the rest of, of the book of Galatians, this idea that you are trusting in Christ the Spirit has now applied this truth to you. You are now living different 
in light of the Spirit. That's what's going to lead us down to the fruit of the Spirit later on in Galatians 5. For the sake of the Galatians, Paul takes it back to circumcision. He says, when it comes to that judgment day, it won't be based on whether or not you've been circumcised. You can be a Jew who's been circumcised or a Gentile who is not, and that is not the deciding factor. The deciding factor is faith alone in Jesus Christ, but then he describes it as faith working through love. This faith is not just a mental ascent. It is a faith that is made evident in love, in sacrifice, in service for others. All throughout Scripture, love is never put forth as just some spoken word or just some emotion. It is put forward as me subjugating my priorities and my desires in favor of yours. I, I am loving you when I am making your priorities the ones that I want to follow. That's active sacrifice. That's what that love looks like. I am serving you by seeking what is good for you and what is gain for you, what is to your benefit. So this faith expresses itself in serving. So this is Paul saying what James will say in James chapter 2, that faith without works is what? Dead, right. Paul has not ignored that here in Galatians because, in fact, the balance of Galatians will talk about how the Spirit evidences that faith in our lives through love and joy and peace and patience and not through worldliness and impurity and immorality. There will be a difference in how we live, but it is the Spirit working that faith through in our lives and producing fruit so that the, the faith is the root, but the love that comes is the fruit of that. It is the sacrificial service to others that is the result of that faith. We are now identified by a living faith. And so when Jesus said in John 13 that the distinctive mark of you all as believers will be your love for one another. They will see you love uniquely, differently, sacrificially, unlike the world attempts to do, and they see that. That will point them back to faith in Christ, because that'll point them back to him. That's what identifies our faith in Christ. We not only have the future expectation of a declaration of righteousness before the throne of God, but we also have his work in us today causing us to live differently and to love sacrificially and to serve. So the identity is a marker. Last section, verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you? Watch the word. So hindered, and then he'll say a similar word down in verse 11. You were running well. Who tripped you up? Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you, that being God. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense, the stumbling block, the tripping up of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. So verses 7 and 11 both hit on this idea of obstacles. This would be our third marker, and that is the difference between the true gospel and the false gospel is the stumbling that is caused. He says in verse 7, you were, you were following. You heard the gospel, and you, you seem to respond to the gospel, and you seem to be walking after the truth. And, and who is it that now is trying to trip you up? Who is standing in the way? Who is blocking your path? Who's trying to divert you in a different direction? And of course, he's talking, he answers his own question. He's talking about the false teachers. Who crossed over into your path and blocked you and tried to divert you down this road? You were following Christ and running well. 
And now the fact that you're even thinking about this other path tells me that somebody has tried to trip you and, and divert you. And as verse 9 says, false gospels have a pervasive effect. He describes it as a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It, this, this persuasion, this, this movement that's hindering you, this isn't from God who has called you. This is something that has seeped in, and, and it just has this spread to it. It is like false teaching so often is the case. It, it, it sort of appeals to the flesh, and it appeals to earthly desires, and it, it sort of sounds comfortable and, and welcoming. And so I, I start to go after it, and it, he says just a little bit of it, and it spreads like leaven that's going through a batch of dough. And the false teachers who are propagating this stuff, Paul warns, just like those false teachers today, will face judgment. Verse 10 says, there is a penalty. They will bear the penalty for this. There will be a price to pay. In fact, I think that's what he's referring to when he gets down and says that interesting and sort of shocking statement in verse 12 when he's been talking about circumcision and now says, I wish that they would emasculate themselves. I think this is a, we're getting a little bit of a glimpse of what righteous anger toward false teaching should look like. This is Paul stirred up that these young believers in whom he has poured the gospel and the Holy Spirit has been working, that they are being tripped up and caused to stumble. He is now speaking harsh words against the false teachers. And, and essentially what they are calling for in their use of circumcision is so completely outside the, the bounds of even God's law, it, it's, it's almost as if it goes back to pagan practices of mutilation. And Paul's attitude seems to be, if, if you're going to vest everything in this, then, then I hope you destroy yourselves with this teaching. It, just go ahead. Take it, take it to its logical conclusion and just continue down this path. This is just Paul, much as, as God does in Romans 1 when he speaks of just sort of opening the, the, the floodgates to those who wish to pursue evil. That's kind of what, what verse 12 is. If you want to take something that by God's own design was a, a good right that was part of God's law and you want to turn it into this, then, then I hope you are destroyed by your own foolishness that is leading others astray. All of this to warn the Galatians of this false teaching. These sorts of obstacles still exist. There are still false teachers who, under the guise of Christianity, speak outside of sound doctrine, who hold out a gospel of prosperity, who talk about things that, that seem to satisfy and, and, and as, as Paul would say, to itch, our itching ears sort of um, tickle our ears in that sense, that, that, that they appeal to us. And yet they are not sound doctrine, and that still happens. There's still, amongst some, a disregard for the gospel and a focus on gain and prosperity. Satan still wants to hinder people. He still wants to divert you from the purity of the gospel and resting in the grace of God and, and move you back towards some performance legalistic basis for your living in Christ. There's still a need to examine whatever is preached, whether it's Stuart or I or any of the elders teaching, there's still a need by you to examine that in the Word and to compare God's Word and to determine if that's what indeed God's Word is saying. That's what Paul's saying to the Galatians, that, that, that this, this group that is hindering them is not consistent with sound doctrine. They are obstacles. They are seeking to trip them up and impede their trust in Christ. But then he says in verse 11, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. 
the gospel also causes people to stumble. He describes it here as almost almost similar language to verse 7. There's a hindering sort of tripping effect that the gospel has on unbelievers. Now, just the point of verse 11, he is suggesting that one of the, the tactics of the false teachers was to say, well, Paul preached circumcision, being a, a Jew who was consistent with the law. You can go back to Acts chapter 6. Paul takes Timothy along with him in his missionary travels. Timothy is the son of a Jewish mother and a Gentile father. He has not been circumcised. He comes to faith in Christ. Paul decides that Timothy should be circumcised because being the son of a Jewish mother, he does not want to add an unnecessary offense when he goes into synagogues and he is talking to a Jewish audience. He does not want to add unnecessary offense. He does not want to stumble them. And so out of deference to a Jewish audience, he does that. But it's not because it's a requirement for salvation. Timothy did not have to be circumcised. It wasn't so that he would be justified in some way. It was simply Paul, as we saw Paul say earlier back in 1 Corinthians, that I'm all things to all people. I'm striving to live in a way that I am relating to the community in a way that I can bring them the gospel of Jesus Christ. But, he says, this gospel is still offensive. Because, he says, the fact that I am not taking the easy path, which would be what the false teachers are doing and saying, yes, circumcision, in which case he says, why would I be being persecuted? I'm being persecuted because I am still holding out the true gospel, and the true gospel is offensive, and it's offensive on at least two levels. First level is you and I, if we're going to communicate the gospel truthfully and completely, are going to have to tell people about sin. We're going to have to confront them with the reality that there is a holy God and we are not, that we are separate from that God because of our sin, that we have disobeyed him and that by nature we are sinners. That's the first offense. And and frankly, I think for most of us, that's the hard part when it comes to talking to people about the gospel is talking about the fact that apart from Christ, you are not right with God. You are under the judgment of God apart from Christ because of your sin. But the second part of it that's, that's offensive to people is we're also saying, the gospel is saying, you're a proud sinner. Not only are you a sinner who is separated from God, but you can't do anything on your own to remedy the situation, right? This is, this is we as human beings. You give me a problem, you tell me that I have a weakness, that I have some inadequacy, and I'm going to discipline myself and work hard at overcoming whatever that is, and I'm going to, to fix it. I'm going to put the effort in so that I, I get it right, And the offense of the gospel is you can't get it right by by your actions, by your efforts, by your law-keeping. You can never be good enough. And so you're a proud sinner. And the gospel just causes people to stumble with that idea when you you talk to an unbeliever. How how is it that you think you would be right with God? How do you think you'd go to heaven? Well, you know, I, I think I'm generally a good person. You know, and I, I try to go to church, or I, I give to charity, or I, I, I serve, you know, I, I, I do things for organizations that help children. You know, I've got all these, these things. And that's our pride. Because we, we live for achievement and accomplishment, for, for scoring and tallying it up and saying, I've done it. And the gospel says, you are helpless before the God of the universe, and your only hope is to take the finished work of the perfect Son of God, Jesus Christ, and rest in it. Believe in it. Acknowledge you are a sinner and believe in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and put your faith in him. And at its core, that is an offense to human pride, which is exactly what the false teachers are playing on. Saying to these 
young Galatian believers. So wait, it's just trust in Christ. What about, you know, don't you, you got to do stuff, don't you? You got to earn it in some way, don't you? That just appeals to our pride. Paul says the gospel's offensive in that way because it says we're helpless before him and we need a savior. The message of Galatians is Jesus Christ has already suffered for your sin. Jesus Christ bore the penalty that you and I deserve and our only hope is to run to the gospel and cling to Jesus Christ and to call him savior and believe with full assurance that one day when we stand before the perfect God of the universe, entering his courtroom of judgment, fully deserving his wrath, that we will instead receive his grace because of the perfect work of his son, Jesus Christ, and a righteousness that has been put on us by Christ. That message is offensive to human pride. It is offensive to achievement and accomplishment and all the things that we strive for. But the gospel of Jesus Christ says, you are lost. And you need a savior. And you need to cry out for Jesus Christ to rescue you. And by the good work of his spirit in us, what Paul's going to go on to say in Galatians is, we are being transformed. That by virtue of his work and applying this truth to us and faith in Christ, that we are now living out a living faith that is enabling us now to serve and glorify this God, not out of some sense of obligation, not out of some sense of earning his approval, but because we are glad-hearted, grateful sinners who are thankful for the reality that one day when we walk into that courtroom, he will say, righteous. I declare you righteous because of what my son has done in your place. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the clarity with which you deliver these things to us. The fact that there is no ambiguity in these teachings, that the gospel is held out as we either rest in Christ or we are cut off from Christ. And so my prayer, Lord, is for anyone here, anyone listening who is not trusting in Jesus Christ alone, who is counting on some some good karma, some good work, some ritualistic prayer, some effort. Lord, I pray that today would be the day when you would cause them to see that the sinless Savior suffered on the cross to rescue sinners, to offer to us life and hope and forgiveness that is based entirely on his good and perfect work and that his resurrection from the dead becomes our hope for eternity. Father, as believers in Jesus Christ, we pray that we would be a people who would examine your word, that we would know what is true, that we would not be afraid to stand for what is true, that we would be acutely aware that there are false teachings, that there are those who would stray from sound doctrine, and that we have been called to be a people who would be careful and deliberate in our handling of your word so that we might know what is true might hold fast to it. Pray that you would preserve Grace Bible Church, that, that, Lord, we would proclaim your truth and remain steadfast in it, and that you would guard us from self-indulgent error of, of going down paths that, that, that seem pleasurable in some way and yet are not consistent with truth. Help us to stand fast on your word. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. Thank you for the, the coming day when we will stand before you and realize in full what it means to be dressed in the righteousness that Jesus Christ accomplished 
in our place and for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.